Good morning. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at the Oceanside United Reformed Church, which, as I always say, meets in Carlsbad, so it's a trick. If you go to Oceanside, you won't find them. It's a, it's a way to find out if you're really elect. <laughs> I think we do that in Pasadena as well, which is not actually in Pasadena, which I found out one Sunday morning, much to my distress, that I was supposed to preach. Turn in your uh, Bibles, please, to the Gospel of Mark, and I'll read the first 20 verses of chapter 15. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And the portion for the sermon this morning is verses 16 through 20, but I want to read a little bit to get some context. The Gospel of Mark, the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he write this word on our hearts, and may he give us true understanding. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this uh, gospel, gospel of Mark, is traditionally the second of the four and there are, there are three that are called the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
And then John is, a, is of a little different character. And of course, each of the Gospels has a slightly different focus and a different audience and, and different things that they want to emphasize for the, for the different audiences. And historically, traditionally, the Gospel of Mark is, it was uh, believed by Eusebius and uh, Clement and Irenaeus, although there's a little difference between Clement and Irenaeus as to exactly when Mark was written, but it was uh, traditionally taken to have been written very early. Now, uh, if you read a lot of introductions, even by conservative New Testament scholars today, they will tell you that Mark was written around 68 to 70 A.D., and that's pretty widely accepted. But there are good reasons for doubting the modern consensus about the date of Mark, and I take it that, in fact, it was written much earlier than that, possibly as early as 43 A.D., which, which if Matthew was, was written first, and that's the traditional uh, understanding of the order, that would make Matthew even, obviously, earlier than that. And there are, as I say, there are good reasons, and I won't bore you with all of the reasons this morning, but that's how I under, understand the, the time and the setting of the Gospel of Mark. So about 43, following a visit of the Apostle Peter, probably uh, to the congregation in Rome. Now, that's not absolutely certain, but it's likely, and, and certainly this Gospel was written to a Roman-influenced congregation, probably a Latin-speaking congregation, and there are, there are evidences uh, within this Gospel to suggest that. So this is a gospel written primarily to Gentile Christians following up on a pastoral visit made by the Apostle Peter. And people, uh, according to the testimony of the early church, very early church, as, in the one, as early as the 150s, people were clamoring for uh, a written record and more explanation of what it is they had heard from the Apostle Peter. And so under the inspiration of the Spirit, John Mark writes up this account, this summary of Peter's teaching and the gospel story for these uh, Latin Christians, probably Roman Christians, in about 43 A.D. under, under Caesar uh, Claudius, under the emperor Claudius. And the great message of the gospel of Mark is evident really on the first page. What's the, what are the first words out of the mouth of our Lord Jesus in the gospel of Mark? Well, chapter 1, the first thing that Jesus, our Lord Jesus says is, you know, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so the Gospel of Mark is a series of snapshots written for early Gentile Christians, uh, probably in the center of the world's greatest then world power. So imagine Christians living in Washington, D.C. Imagine Christians living in a setting where everything is about power. I don't know if you pay much attention to politics. I'm a little bit of a political junkie. I, I watch it the way some people watch sports. And, and the thing about politics, the essence of politics is power. Politics is the administration of power. And politics is the acquisition of power and the search for power and the analysis of power. And that was life in first century Rome. That was life in 43 AD. And if any of you have lived in Sacramento or any other capital, I used to live in the state capital of Nebraska, it's all about power. My dad was involved in politics. And at, at, at night we would sit around at the dinner table and talk about what this city councilman said and what that county uh, uh, 
county councilman or whatever his title was, what had said or she had said or what the mayor had said or what the governor had said in this meeting or that meeting and who was in and who was out. That was, the, that was really the discussion. Who was getting his way or her way? Who was having influence and who was out of influence? And if you lived in Rome, which was actually by our standards at that point, a fairly small city, uh, if you lived in Rome in 43 AD in a fairly, what we, what we would regard today as a fairly small city, everybody knew who was in and who was out. And power was conceived and kingdoms were conceived and kings were thought of in terms of influence and power and control. One of my old professors used to talk about control, authority, and power. And those are three very good nouns to, to uh, think about relative to kingdoms and kings. But in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus comes announcing a different kind of a kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Change the way you think. Turn away from your prior way of thinking. Make a 180 degree turn, he says. And think about the kingdom of God in a, in a way that you have never thought of it before. That's what he was announcing. He came as the king and he came bringing a kingdom. But there's also another great aspect to the gospel of Mark, and that is the story of the suffering of Jesus. And so the great challenge that they faced in 43 AD as this gospel was being read to them, probably very much gathered in a, in a setting not unlike this setting this morning. An elder, a minister would stand up in front of them and read this gospel message to them. And imagine how it sounded in their ears the first time that they heard it. A, whole, a series of fast-moving snapshots of a king and his kingdom in the, being heard in the context where everyone was talking about who's in and who's out. And the great thing that they had to synthesize is the, is the ending of the gospel. Because as many people have observed, the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Matthew and... and uh, and Luke are, to a large degree, a long prologue leading up to the crucifixion narrative. And that's where we are in this gospel. How to synthesize, then, the kingdom, that is, bring together, integrate this notion of God's kingdom and his power, his rule, his authority in the world and everywhere, with the notion of, of Jesus' suffering humiliation and death. How do we bring those things together? Because when we think about kings and kingdoms, we don't think about humiliation, suffering, and death. In fact, most of the time when we think about those kinds of things, we think of them as complete opposites. Because most of the time in most of the world, in most of our experience, they are in fact complete opposites. Once again, Jesus says, repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, let's look and see how the story unfolds in our passage this morning in verses 16 through 20. First thing that we have to notice in our passage is, is the is where this takes place. Beginning in verse 16, you see the soldiers led him away, that is Jesus, uh, uh, inside the palace. 
That is the praetorian is what it says. The, the, uh, translated in the ESV, the governor's headquarters. Scholars debate about exactly where Jesus was led, but it's most likely that he was led to one of the more glorious buildings, probably a, a building built by Herod. And it was a pretty impressive um, place. And that's why the first word that's used there is the word for palace. This Praetorian uh, uh, headquarters was a symbol of power. Have you ever? I have never been to Washington, D.C. I've seen it on television many times. I've never been. But back home, we have a, a, a very impressive state capitol. And it was built with the intention of being impressive. In fact, it's so impressive that no one in, in Lincoln is allowed to build a building that in any way obscures the view of the capitol. So the closer your building is, the, the taller it can be. But the farther out of town, the, the lower it has to be. And so that when you drive into town, you, if it's a clear day, you can see the state capitol from a very long way away. It's very impressive. It dominates the, the city it's, it, from just about anywhere in the city and anywhere from 20 miles around on a good day. You can see the state capitol. And at night, you can see the little red light up on the top warning the airplanes, don't crash into this. This is a tall building. And that's, it's that way in most places. Most state capitals and national capitals have impressive buildings. And they're built intentionally impressive. Right? They're intending to make you think certain things and to make you, and actually to affect you, to make you feel certain things, to make you feel awe and reverence. This is part of how societies organize themselves to maintain some sort of order. Because at the end of the day, civil society is really about the law. And if you doubt me, you clearly haven't been watching the news. If you just turn on the television, you look and see what's happening all across the Middle East, and you look and, what, look and see what's happening in the UK. Total chaos and breakdown of order. And people beside themselves and authorities without any idea how they're really going to restore order on a long-term basis and maintain it in some respects. So that's why governments build impressive buildings to say, we are a powerful entity. Fear us, respect us, behave yourself. That's what that building says. And our Lord, in whom was found no guilt. Pilate, one of the, I mean, in, in, in a historical context outside the Gospels, he's not a particularly exceptional fellow. He's basically just your run-in-the-mill bureaucrat, a little grubbier than most a little more self-serving, self-seeking than most, but otherwise not terribly exceptional. But in the providence of God, his name will always be remembered for being in conjunction and being the functionary who had the responsibility of presiding in judgment over God the Son in the flesh. What a remarkable conjunction. Most bureaucrats, and I don't mean any offense, my dad was a bureaucrat for years and years. I've been a bureaucrat, so I, speak, I know whereof I speak. The, the function of most bureaucrats is to get through the day. Few bureaucrats get up and say, you know, today I'm really going to make a difference. I'm going to transform the world. I'm going to do something spectacular. Most people go in, the studies have shown this, most people go into bureaucracy with the intention of having a good job, a safe job, a secure job, and, and something they can stop thinking about after 5 o'clock in the afternoon. 
pilot was something like that, maybe a little more, hoping to climb, hoping to be successful. He's a politician, but I'm sure he didn't wake up thinking, you know, I'm going to have to judge God the Son today. I wonder how that's going to go. Here it is in the gospel before us. It really happened in real time and in real history. It's an extraordinary confluence of events. And the soldiers led him away into this palace, having been judged and, by the way, found not guilty. Having been found not guilty, still they beat him. They, they, not, they not only beat him, they scourged him. They had a stick, and on the end of this stick were leather straps, several of them, and on the end of those leather straps were something sharp, pottery, metal, or something else, that, as you may well know, were designed to tear the flesh. And that by the time they were done scourging him, and there was no limit, by the way, how much somebody who was arrested could be scourged. Jesus was not a Roman citizen. He was not entitled to the protections of a Roman citizen. And so he could be scourged pretty much at will. So that at the end of that, typically, the subject being scourged uh, would be uh, shredded. The back would be shredded into ribbons, muscle exposed, bone exposed. It was, it was brutal. So Jesus, having been scourged already, is taken into this, into this palace, this symbol of power. And that's the first thing that you need to see, that he was led into a palace. And there's obviously irony here. Who announces a kingdom but a king? Obviously the herald of the king, but he's acting on behalf of the king. And king, the king of kings and the lord of lords came into history and he announced his kingdom. And now the king has a palace. The kind of palace that many kings, or to which many kings aspire. But there's a great deal of irony here, and we shouldn't miss it, and certainly the original hearers were not to miss this irony. They would have seen this right away. Yeah, well, it's a, this is a place where earthly, civil, military power, it's the Praetorian, and so it's the headquarters of the military. This is a place where real power is exercised. And what does Jesus, King Jesus, bring into this palace? Real weakness. Symbolized by, represented by, bloody, shredded flesh. By the time he got to the Praetorian, he was a mess. And they weren't finished with him yet. So he's led by soldiers into this symbol of power and he's led before the military unit. Uh, the, the ESV translates it battalion. That's just a guess. It's some sort of small military uh, unit, or military unit of some sort, possibly small, possibly larger than that. And they begin to mock him as, as a king. You look at verses 17 through 20 you'll see that they treat Jesus as if he were a prince. That's the second point. The first is that he's taken to a palace, and the second is that they treat him as a prince, and they clothe him in a purple cloak. Purple, as you probably know, is the symbol, the color of royal authority, royal office. And, of course, they didn't mean it, but, again, there's irony here. Because, in fact, he was a king, but he wasn't the kind of king 
that they were expecting. And so they clothed them in purple and they twist together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. You know, it's interesting. Uh, how, you know, we live in a democratic society. And we have lived in an increasingly democratic society since about the 1820s. Prior to that, we, we were actually a much more hierarchical society. It was a revolution of sorts, a second revolution in this country beginning in the 1820s. And that principle that was uh, unleashed in the 1820s has continued to work its way out. So we believe now, typically as modern, late modern Americans, in pretty radical equality. Do you know that it wasn't very many years ago that none of us were allowed to vote directly for United States senators? It used to be that United States senators were elected by state legislatures. And the reason that is so is so that the rabble wouldn't be too directly involved, we're the rabble, by the way, in in national affairs, national politics, national governance. That's the point of the Electoral College. I don't know if you realize this, but we don't actually elect the president. There's, a, there's an organization, it's a little bit like the College of Cardinals that elects the Pope, and it's, a, it's the Electoral College, it's the same principle. They actually elect the president of the United States. Now, there's a movement to, to get rid of that, and, and probably eventually they will get rid of it on the democratic leveling principle that has operated in this country since the 1820s. So we live in a very democratic society. We like to lift people up and then flatten them out. We do it to celebrities all the time. At the same time, we have an inordinate attraction in this highly democratic society to royalty. It's an interesting thing. You'd think that people who broke away militarily and intentionally and violently from the British Empire would not be very interested in royalty. But I bet some of you got up early in the morning to see the royal wedding. And I don't even have to tell you what the royal wedding is. If I say the royals, you're probably not thinking of a baseball team in Kansas City. We still have an attraction to royalty. It's sort of interesting, sort of odd. It doesn't make entire sense, given our, our very strong democratic impulses in this country. Royalty has always had attraction. I'm not going to offer any psychological analysis as to why that is, but it's certainly the case. And so they begin treating Jesus in an ironic, cruel, mocking way as a prince. And they clothe him with purple and they twist a crown of thorns. These are symbols of royal authority. And they're, and they're not finished yet. And they begin to salute him. Probably in Latin. Solve! That's what they would have said. Hail, King of the Jews. Solve! Regne Judaeorum. Hail, King of the Jews. And of course, they didn't believe for a moment that he was King of the Jews. They certainly didn't believe that he was King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They certainly didn't believe that he was the sovereign God who, through whom all things came into being and who stands in judgment over mediocre bureaucrats such as Pilate and even Roman emperors such as Claudius. 
and they mocked him and they weren't finished with him. Verse 19, and they were striking his head and the verb there indicates and the English translation captures the spirit of it that they were doing it repeatedly. They repeatedly struck him with a reed, with a stick, a cane. And they spat on him. So you can see there, there's no, I mean, it, it's all irony, it's all cruelty, it's all brutality, and it's really just a, a macabre theater for their own entertainment. If you've been in, the, in and around the military at all, I have not. Well, I do get the impression of talking to folks who have. You get a, and I do know from hanging around in locker rooms with guys, things can get a little out of hand pretty quickly. You get a bunch of guys together, and this is what you have is a bunch of guys together taking their clue from Pilate, Pilate's cynical actions. And, the pro, and it's most likely that they were a little bit offended by him, which is why they mocked him. Have you ever seen a, uh, I, I suppose they're still called nerds, the, the, the really smart kids in school get picked on or mocked? Why, why do people pick on the, the smart kids with the thick glasses and the, and the high GPA? They're not hurting anyone. Why are, they, why are they singled out? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, just if you even ask, it on, ask the question on evolutionary grounds. You can see why somebody who might be physically threatened or threatening would attract some attention. But why would someone who doesn't attract any attention, who doesn't present any threat, receive that kind of treatment? The The same principle is at work here. They were offended by him. How dare you? How dare you be different? How dare you even... Begin to represent yourself as something that you clearly are not. Were you a king, you would not be bleeding. Were you a king, you would not have been judged by Pilate. Were you a king, you would never have been handed over to Pilate. You are a pretender and you disgust us. Have you ever, has anyone ever spat on you? I suspect. I don't know that this is the case. It's certainly the case in this culture. That is probably the greatest insult anyone can, can pronounce against a person, is to spit on them. It was true here. They absolutely abhorred him. They were, they were revulsed by him, and they expressed that by spitting on him. And they knelt down and they hailed him. They treated him like a prince. Why did this happen? Well, they took him, children, to a palace in the providence of God to show that he really was a king in in an unusual way, in an unexpected way, but in fact to show that he really is a prince and he really is a king, even though he didn't look like one and even though he wasn't treated like one. And they beat him and they mocked him, children, to show that he is, is, is a prince, but he's a suffering prince. He's not the kind of prince that we normally think of. He's not the kind of prince that you might have seen on television 
if you watch the video of the royals getting married with all the pomp and the circumstances. But he really was a prince. How do I know that? Well, because the word of God told us it would be that way. We sang about it in, in Psalm 22. We sang, and you, you know about it from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. But before that enthronement of the prince can take place, some other things have to take place. And the book of Isaiah, the gospel of Isaiah, end of chapter 52 through chapter 53, tells us the story of what the prince, the Lord who sat at Yahweh's right hand. There are two two, uh, Hebrew names in Psalm 110. Two figures in Psalm 110. Yahweh says to Adon, sit at my right hand. We are watching Adon preparing to take his royal seat. Children, Jesus really is a king, but he's not the kind of king that people ordinarily look for. And he's not the kind of king that the soldiers, for which the soldiers were looking, but he really was a king because God's word says that he was a king and that he is a king. But, the, but before he could assume his royal power in all his glory, he had to suffer. And so he did. And then at the end there, you, you see verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes back on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Why does Mark add verse 20? Well, he's been in a palace. He's been shown in, a, in an ironic way to be a prince. But verse 20 is added to show us that they had missed the point. Everybody present through that whole episode, beginning with the crowds outside and with Herod, or Pilate, excuse me, inside, to the soldiers in the praetorium. All of them had missed the point. They had missed the point of Jesus' ministry. They had missed the point of his message. They had missed the point of his incarnation. Why is that? There was, after all, it's not as if there was no evidence to verify that he was who he said he was. If, if evidence were enough, and evidence is important, because there is real evidence, children, that Jesus is who he, said he, who he said he is. I and the Father are one, he said. No one has seen the Father at any time. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus clearly, repeatedly, and unequivocally laid claim to being God the Son in the flesh. And he demonstrated his divine royal authority and power and control again and again and again. By healing, by raising from the dead, by casting out demons, by feeding multitudes, by walking on water. Honestly, if it were, if it were just evidence, they would all have been Christians. But the evidence wasn't enough. Because there's something else that's absolutely necessary. 
Do you know what that is? It's the work of God the Holy Spirit. Until and unless God the Holy Spirit opens one's eyes, softens one's heart, illumines one's mind, changes one's affections, that is, operates on all the faculties of the human soul, the intellect, the will, and the affections, it's not possible for us to see the point. It is only when God the Holy Spirit operates, and that's part of what Mark is saying to this congregation in Rome. He's saying to them, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus, if you are gathered this morning hearing this message, and if it touches your heart, and if you see yourself in the soldiers, if you see yourself in the crowd, if you see yourself in Pilate, if you realize that is what you were, that is how you once regarded Jesus, but you now no longer regard him. If you're horrified as you hear this narrative, if you're appalled and shocked, not merely on humanitarian grounds, because you can imagine a well-meaning, broad-minded, humanitarian, non-Christian being appalled in anyone being treated this way. But if you are appalled in... in because it is not just because a human being is being treated so badly, but because it is God the Son who is voluntarily submitting to this humiliation. That's a good thing. Because that means God the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes and you've, you've begun to see what is really happening. You've begun to believe and you've entered into the kingdom that Jesus announced at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And that's by, and only by, the sovereign, free, unmerited favor of God to sinners. But if you hear this story this morning and it still doesn't touch you and it doesn't mean anything and you think, so what? You're a soldier. You're a mob. You're part of the mob still. And I know I used to be part of the mob. Absolutely. I remember exactly how I felt when people told me the story of Jesus. And when I met Christians and heard Christian speech, I remember the exact same disgust I felt that, that, the, that the soldiers felt. How, and I tell you exactly what I thought. How dare you? Indeed. How dare you, unless, of course, you really are God the Son in the flesh, then you dare. And why did he dare? Why did he submit? Because this is the only way that we could be made right with God. It, it took the king to come and establish his kingdom not through the exercise of military power or civil power or outward power, but through the exercise of real spiritual power. The only way that things could be made right was through death. Think of Adam. After he fell, after they fell, when God came, what was the first thing that Adam did? He covered up. He equivocated. He dodged. He ducked. He tried to protect himself. Look at the second Adam. 
what is the first thing that, that the second Adam does? He obeys. He submits. He suffers. And he dies. You couldn't have a clearer contrast. And why did he do it, beloved? He did it, and all the time he did it, and I want you to listen, he did it because you were on his mind, you were in his heart, and, and he carried you on his back. It's as if you had done all that he did. It's as if now, if you believe that you were spat upon, that you were beaten, you were humiliated, you were mocked, that your back was exposed, and that you were led out to be crucified. The, the, the great irony of this passage is that the eternal king of the eternal, unchangeable, unshakable kingdom, all other kingdoms, Scripture says, shall be shaken except one. And the king of that kingdom was shaken, in a sense, for you and for us. I trust this morning that you have placed your trust, your confidence, your hope in that king and are by grace alone, through faith alone, a citizen of this unshakable, eternal kingdom. And, and placing all your confidence in that great king who obeyed for you, who suffered for you, who was taken to the cross for you, and who, going back to Psalm 22, is ascended now in Psalm 110 and seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day, the power and the pomp and the circumstance in this world and in time and space that those soldiers sought and expected, and that the crowd expected and demanded, and that Pilate thought was so important. One day, according to Psalm 22, they will see it. Every knee, Paul says, quoting, paraphrasing Psalm 22, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Let's give thanks. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning with hearts that are both encouraged and discouraged because we see in ourselves so much of the soldier and so much of Pilate and so much of the crowd. And we're sorry for that. We're sorry that it was our sins that required that you endure what you did but our hearts are also full of joy at the same time. Maybe joy mixed with sadness, but joy that you endured the path, the humiliation, and the cross set before you that we might be citizens of an eternal, unshakable, and trustworthy kingdom, and that we might be servants of a glorious, holy, righteous, and gracious and merciful King. 
So we give you thanks, King Jesus, this morning. And we bow our knees now this morning. And we say we love you. Forgive our sins. Continue to work in us by your spirit. That we may see your kingdom for what it is. That we may see you for who and what you are. And that our lives may reflect in some small way the citizenship with which you have endowed us. Hear our prayer, for we ask in Jesus' name, in your own name. Amen.